We need to resist the narratives that are frequently served to us by corporations that sell these technologies, that these models of the future are dependent upon the particular technologies that they're selling, right? That it's always some future that is just around the corner that we have to buy into when in fact the future is already here. Hi, I'm Tim Schneider, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Have you ever wanted to live a different kind of life in a different kind of place? What if this other place gave you the power to do and be almost anything you wanted, anywhere you wanted, anytime you wanted? Suppose that what you could build here and who you could be here had nothing to do with your finances. Not even the laws of physics would hold you back. If you wanted to be the monarch of a gothic castle perched on a cloud, suspended forever above a Nordic woodland, you could have that tomorrow. You could even do all of this in a new body, under a new name, with neither one having any apparent connection to your physicality or your past. It gets even wilder, because this other place would also welcome millions of other individuals with just as much freedom as you, so that you could all continue building this new world together. You could form new relationships, establish new traditions, and experience a new wave of art and culture held back by nothing but the artist's imaginations. Doesn't that sound great? Well. Billions of dollars and untold hours of labor are being pumped into making this fantasy a reality. An immersive digital reality. And some of the most influential, most powerful people in the world are saying it will be called the metaverse. But what is the metaverse, exactly? Why has it elbowed its way deep enough into the mainstream news cycle that my retired parents are asking me about it? And what does it mean for the art world specifically? If you'd like to know, then slide on down the rabbit hole with me and a few expert guides. My name is Wagner James Zhao. I'm the author of The Making of Second Life in 2008 and coming next year, Why the Metaverse Matters from Second Life to Meta and Beyond, a guide by its first embedded journalist. And I also write a blog called New World Notes, which is basically my kind of day-to-day notes on the latest in metaverse news and culture. My name is Sarah Ludi. I'm an artist and composer based in Placidas, New Mexico. My name is Tina Rivers Ryan, and I'm a curator of modern and contemporary art at the Buffalo AKG Art Museum, formerly known as the Albright Knox Art Gallery in Buffalo, New York. If you've only heard about the metaverse in the past year or so, You probably identify it with either a major corporate pivot from Mark Zuckerberg's rebranded tech colossus, now known as Meta, or, in the art world, Sotheby's Metaverse, the auction house's nascent NFT sales platform. So it might surprise you to learn that the idea has actually been around for decades. In fact, developers have now been trying to build versions of a Metaverse for close to 40 years, according to Wagner James Al. Basically... From the inception of the internet, there's been a desire to create virtual worlds. In the mid-80s, a very groundbreaking virtual world called Habitat was launched. It was actually from George Lucas's game publishing arm. And Habitat was 2D, but it had 
kind of animation and it showed each user having their own virtual home where they would have a mailbox and they'd be able to walk to other homes and communicate with other users. And so that was one of the first sort of very prototypical virtual worlds that was described through graphics. And then after that, Active Worlds was another leader in this space, and that came out in the late 90s. And that was very much created with the idea of being a metaverse. Where does the word metaverse come from, anyway? In 1992, programmer and sci-fi author Neil Stevenson published a now-classic dystopian novel called Snow Crash. The story takes place on a near-future Earth where most citizens escape their miserable day-to-day circumstances by using virtual reality headsets to live as avatars in a shared, computer-generated world where anything that can be imagined can also be built or experienced. That world was called, you guessed it, the metaverse. So often I'll see in the media, no one's sure what the metaverse really is. And it's like, there's an actual famous book where it's described in great detail. And it also directly influenced the early platforms that were trying to become the metaverse, including Second Life. When I came into Linden Lab, I saw Snow Crash, the book, very prominently among the reference books in the company's library. Neil Stevenson is a programmer as well as an author, so he really thought through how large this is going to be, what the concurrency of users is going to be, avatar capabilities, and he laid it out very explicitly. The startup I just mentioned, Linden Lab, played a pivotal role in metaverse history. In the early to mid-aughts, Linden Lab unveiled Second Life, a shared virtual world with grand ambitions. Philip Rosedale, the company's founder, Notably said at one point that he was not trying to build a game, he was trying to build a country. Linden Lab actually hired Al to embed in Second Life to be, in his words, and I quote, a cross between historian, ethnographer, and sole reporter of a frontier town newspaper, end quote. His years of travel around this new online world as an avatar gave him a first-hand view of its growth, development, and fundamental differences from other would-be competitors. When Linden Lab, the company behind it, launched it as a kind of traditional MMO, massively multiplayer online role-playing game or just online world, or at least they marketed as such, similar to uh, The Sims Online, which just came out a year before that with a lot of fanfare. Different from a traditional MMO where it's more about killing orcs and goblins and so on for leveling up points, it was more about giving the users creation tools to create items from basically nothingness. You'd put your hand out and you would instantiate objects and you could put those objects together. Similar to Minecraft, but this was in 2003 or so. Had that similar spirit of creation. So very kind of rudimentary cartoon graphics. If you look at images now of Second Life by the current users, it looks very hyper-realistic. Before that, in the beginning days, it was much more abstract. The buzz over Second Life, it started around 2005, really hit kind of full acceleration 2006. Very, very similar to what we're seeing now with talk about the metaverse. It was basically every news story you see about the metaverse now, it was that, but Second Life instead of the metaverse, or used interchangeably because a lot of the conversation was, oh yeah, this is the metaverse, right? Around 2005 and six, kind of the mind share of Second Life grew really quickly. So as the mindshare of Second Life grew, the interest 
in terms of real engagement grew from, for example, universities. So there was at peak hundreds of colleges and universities with a official virtual campus in Secolife, including Harvard and Princeton. Then there was interest from outside companies that wanted to work with Second Life on building what effectively was a metaverse. So IBM, for example, became a close partner of Linden Lab early on to create a fully interoperable metaverse. And as that happened, you had big companies like CBS, like Nissan, Duran Duran, the band, also wanted to create an official presence in Second Life for marketing purposes. Primarily, although also for prototyping, like Amazon created a prototyping space in Second Life. So big companies like that. So was Second Life a metaverse? Is a metaverse even a thing? Or can we only have one true metaverse, like the all-encompassing one Neil Stevenson envisioned in Snow Crash? The answers depend on who you ask and what they value. The metaverse is a vast, immersive virtual world that's simultaneously accessible in real time by millions of users who have highly customizable avatars and experience creation tools. And it's integrated with the real world economy. In other words, you can make a living from it. And it's compatible with external technologies. So you could hook it up to other devices, say like robots and cars and so on. Curator Tina Rivers-Ryan largely agrees with Al on the fundamentals. I want to reserve the right to say that this is a hypothesis and that I am completely open to debate about this definition. But I think that a metaverse is a social, immersive, and virtual world, and that it has to be all of those three things in combination. I don't think that an immersive virtual world that is for a kind of single-player experience, right, that one only experiences as a kind of solo adventure without interacting with other people. I don't think of that as being a metaverse. But Sarah Ludi feels a little differently. What makes something a metaverse is just another space where we can interact socially that is through an electronic interface. Even like Web 1.0, for me, felt like a metaverse, like going into like AOL 2.7 chat rooms and talking with people, you know, around the world when I was 14 years old was an incredibly impactful thing. And it already started to have like a marketplace and a way to share things. So I guess what I would define as a metaverse is just simply an interface that's electronic where we can interact with one another. Ludi's perspective starts to show just how slippery the metaverse can be once you try to define it by listing its features. If the key traits really are it's social, it's immersive, and it's virtual, doesn't that sound a lot like the internet we've been living with for years? If not, Ryan would ask you to reconsider why not. I think we misunderstand what the metaverse can be if we imagine that the metaverse is dependent upon a particular hardware system or a particular threshold of immersion, right? I think it's kind of a continuum. In many ways, we're already living in the metaverse. I met my husband on the internet. I met many of my best friends on the internet. I regularly am in group chats with people who are only known to me through the internet, who I've never met IRL. And those relationships are as meaningful to me as the ones I have with like my college roommates. 
Things get even more interesting once we broach the idea of artwork in the metaverse. Because in one sense, transporting an audience into simulated worlds and simulated experience has been the job of artists for centuries. I think it is important to tease out the technological and socio-historical specificity of our own moment and of other moments and to not create a total flattening to understand that there are technocultural paradigms that really change and have been changing very rapidly for the past like 200 years, such that we can draw a connection between, let's say, 19th century panoramas and today's headset-based virtual environments, but shouldn't necessarily elide them. There's still something really important and distinct about today's experiences that I don't want to get lost in that historical connection. But what kind of art would be made in a metaverse anyway? Second Life gives us some historical insights. There's a huge community of Second Life creators who create art just taking really beautiful screenshots. And often they will arrange items like their uh, photographer to create very impactful images. And so there's that level of, of using Second Life to create 2D images. Then there's the immersive art where it's actually part of being part of the experience is the artwork. And so the most well-known person who's done this from the kind of traditional or mainstream art world, her name is Chao Fei. She's considered probably one of the top Chinese artists of her generation working now. And she came into Second Life early on, I believe it was 2005 or so, and she created an avatar for herself named China Tracy. And she sort of did similar to what I did, but she did it on video. She wandered the world and just started interviewing people and created a, a really uh, amazing kind of full-length feature from it. It very, kind of has a, a Wong Kar Wai feel where she's just meeting people very non-judgmentally sort of experiencing the world. And then she created what she called RMB City, like RMB, like the money in China. And so it was this concept of a whole city in Second Life that was sort of a surreal version of Beijing with a lot of the competing ideas in modern China happening in Second Life. So there was um, a statue of Mao, but there was also like a giant floating R&B sign. So this sort of clash between capitalism, communism, and traditional China. And she did something really brilliant. She went to uh, Art Basel that she started selling virtual real estate. They created a uh, real estate agency in Art Basel, and people would come in and bid on virtual real estate that they could buy to own property in Second Life in this R&B city. And so she kept rolling out this whole experience to the point where she actually built R&B City in Second Life and did a launch with one of the big art institutions in New York. Another one, more from the community, his uh, avatar name is AM Radio. He was actually a uh, developer at IBM. He'd create these really beautiful, immersive experiences where he'd recreate kind of this nostalgic past that was sort of a dreamlike version of America. His most famous piece is called The Far Away, and it's this really beautiful wheat field. And in the wheat field is this abandoned train that's grown to rust. 
but there's some kind of fantastic elements. If you got on the train, you'd suddenly become an angel. But it's very, very highly detailed. Like I said, his whole idea was to evoke a nostalgia for the pre-internet world. His name is Jeffrey Berg. Still does different experiments in metaverse slash artificial intelligence art. Ludi sees her own path to creating work in virtual reality as an organic progression. It started with her early experiences with consumer tech, which led to her training at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, her work within net art communities, which, for the uninitiated, are groups of artists and curators who created and exhibited art made primarily for a digital context, and then eventually it led her into headset-enabled virtual environments. Initially, when I started in VR, I was really excited about the idea of teleporting, interacting with objects, and I became like really mesmerized by like how cool stuff looked. Like, oh, there's this shiny thing, it's right in front of me, and, and inspecting that. But I felt like there's just so much more to VR than the sort of spectacle of it, and there's something like I found to be really beautiful about crafting an experience and almost considering VR as another extension of animation that you're inhabiting. And through my animation practice, I really like crafting journeys and crafting experiences through spaces. So it was kind of like that, but like times a hundred. World building in general is intense and it requires a lot. I like to approach it in a way that's similar as if I was working on a painting where I'm working with material and then it shows me what it wants to be. And that's how I'm approaching my VR rather than trying to assert something. And to me, that's kind of exciting. And I think that that kind of opens up the space of what VR could possibly be. I mean, I think that inherently artists you know, what we do is we are trying to open up ways of seeing the world and open up perceptions. And we do it in a very peculiar way. We kind of go into corners and we work with material and ideas in a way that maybe a technologist isn't working with, um, maybe a, a curator, writer isn't working with. And we also do a lot of research too. So I think that I think inherently just how artists see the world, that they're incredibly integral and important to thinking about how virtual worlds are going to manifest on a larger scale if they're able to. Um, even the idea of the metaverse, like we would want artists to be building this. And I think that too, we tend to kind of try to be neutral and try to not have too many judgments at first. So we can go into something um, without any preconceived notions or bias and able to sort of extract, you know, from those experiences. Other contemporary artists have been engaging with online virtual worlds in even more boundary-pushing ways. I mean, I think to me, the poet laureate of the metaverse is and will always be Laturbo Abaddon, who is essentially the first avatar artist Laturbo Avedon is a being that exists only on the internet. They are a username, a profile, a character that exists across many different gaming platforms, social media networks, 
And of course, each time Laturbo is instantiated in one of these networks, they might appear slightly differently. They might have a different history, but the name is always the same. Laturbo is actually the artist who authors works within these spaces. And if I was going to point to something particular that Laturbo has done, I think one of their most sort of high profile projects is the work they did inside of Fortnite Creative, which was commissioned by the Manchester International Festival and created an experience called Your Progress Will Be Saved. And so you can actually go and interact with this world in Fortnite Creative, or you can also experience it via Twitch. There's also like a sort of like browser-based version. You can also watch Laturbo inside of this world, like screen recordings. Just the fact that basically they conceived of an art project, an installation inside of the space of Fortnite, that they're inhabiting these spaces and claiming an area of them for artistic experiences, encouraging us to inhabit these spaces for our own purposes and to not necessarily have the experience be goal-directed, goal-oriented in the way that games normally are, but to understand that we're actually inhabiting new worlds and to sort of stop and smell the flowers, essentially, and realize that we are in a totally new frontier of existence. So thinking about what it means to create those kinds of transcendent, contemplative experiences inside the metaverse. I mean, I really look to Laturbo for that. Hello, and thank you for joining me here at the Virtual Factory. Many thanks to Manchester International Festival for allowing me to be the first to work within this new space. An online portal where artists can create worlds reflecting the potential of the work that will be made in the factory. My name is Letarbo Avedon. I am an avatar, artist, and curator from the internet. Being here with me now, like this, we are as close as we can ever be to one another. There is a chance that our paths may have crossed before, but not in the ways you may typically expect. It would have never been on a sidewalk or in a crowd. I may have been your teammate, your adversary. You might have seen me wandering through a virtual landscape or floating quietly through a simulated space. I'm virtual, and I have always been this way. For the past 10 years I have been making my way outside. One big reason the metaverse has become a part of the mainstream news cycle since 2021 is that many crypto boosters have portrayed the metaverse as possibly the most significant eventual use case for blockchain technology. The argument is basically that to build robust social communities in a virtual world, especially around art and cultural production, you need a virtual currency that can support a virtual economy, and you need a way to verify that virtual goods are authentic. Blockchain theoretically solves those problems, but the experts I talked to for this episode were a little skeptical, and in some cases, more than a little skeptical. Crypto and blockchain has not been proven whatsoever to add anything to a metaverse platform. There's been several, like The Sandbox and Decentraland. They have very, very few users. I'm talking like online, a few hundred people maybe. So the main categorical mistake they're making is they assume because they instantiate 
a virtual currency or a virtual real estate that is valuable, that people are going to create a community around that. But the mistake is assuming that when it's really a community that exists and thrives beforehand, and that's what makes these virtual objects valuable, is there's a community already built around each other and enjoying each other's company and creativity and sustain that. You do want to have ways of people making a side income, for example. In fact, the problem is bigger than blockchain. It's bigger than any particular software or hardware. It's about setting up the public to believe that the only ways to be a part of the metaverse are to pay for products or services that they don't already have and to accept conditions that they might otherwise not. We need to resist the narratives that are frequently served to us by corporations that sell these technologies that these models of the future are dependent upon the particular technologies that they're selling, right? That it's always some future that is just around the corner that we have to buy into when in fact the future is already here. And of course, we can also talk about the fact that there may be certain parties who are invested in us not recognizing the way in which our lives have already been transformed by these technologies and not just by literally by technologies like headsets, but by paradigms. The headset almost becomes an afterthought when we've already achieved such a thorough penetration of surveillance technologies into our everyday lives. The headset is kind of beyond the point when we already have ring cameras and refrigerators that are connected to the internet and basically can no longer imagine any kind of transaction or device that isn't networked, that isn't feeding back information into a kind of corporate database. This line of thinking is especially relevant to the boom and semi-bust of NFTs in the art industry since the $69.3 million sale of Beeple's Everydays in March 2021. Love them, hate them, or try your best to ignore them completely, NFTs and their alleged value to art in the metaverse have reinvigorated issues left to simmer in the art world for too long without resolution. When it comes to the NFT space and the blockchain space, there are a lot of parts of what's happening, right, with the hyper-financialization of art, for example, that I find super problematic. But I also find a lot of connection with the conversations that are emerging out of this space it's more interesting and critical voices represented, for example, by organizations like Furtherfield that have to do with these questions of autonomy, of codependency with technologies and also with each other and in communities in like the best possible sense of the term, this notion of community trying to understand what community means in information economy, in which all of our interpersonal relationships, let alone our sort of transactions and work, are being quantified and operationalized and financialized and instrumentalized. I think a lot of people in this space have been having the very conversations that, frankly, the contemporary art world, if it wants to be relevant, needs to be having. 
Ludi, who started minting and selling NFTs of some of her artworks early in 2021, speaks to the pros and cons from firsthand experience. I think that we shouldn't get too comfortable with the idea that all transactions and interactions that we have with one another can be recorded. I have a bit of like a dystopic fear that that's where we're headed, especially we have to remember that we're in this heavily surveilled era. I wouldn't want that to necessarily be fundamental to the idea of the metaverse. So I think with anything, you have to have moderation and balance. So if the blockchain is going to be a sort of like crucial part of the metaverse, what does that look like? How deep are we going to go with it? And are we going to be able to still preserve an element of anonymity and privacy um, alongside that? With the boom of NFTs, it was incredibly exciting, first of all, for underrepresented artists to be seen and to have a platform to connect with other peers and to be supported, um, their works being collected, they're making a little money. They might not have to take that one freelance job for like a couple months and all of these things. And that seemed to be a sort of breakthrough um, for the digital art community. Um, and especially for artists who I like to say, like laptop artists, you know, like where I consider myself like a laptop artist. I don't have a massive studio. I like to be self-contained and not do things that are super resource heavy. However, I think that there is totally room for that. I don't know what that looks like because I don't think that the NFT space is necessarily a healthy and sustainable space because of what is required from artists to have to constantly be marketing and promoting themselves. Like you have to be plugged into Discord 24-7 and you're basically like juggling several other aspects of what it means to be an artist in a way that takes away from just making art and it's exhausting. So personally, I'm actually like in a digital detox right now and reassessing what it means to have a healthy, sustainable digital practice. But that like spawned from burnout. I can barely open my computer screen right now and actually like struggled to finish the last works of my show because I had burned out just having to be online um, all the time. I'm seeing a lot of the same sort of like problematics happening again in the digital space that happened when post-internet came about. These institutions and curators are always elevating the same group of artists and their processes at the expense of ignoring so many other amazing artists. So after all of the caveats and complications raised so far, you might be asking yourself, why does the metaverse matter, especially for the art world? What can it offer that we don't already have and we can't already do? It's a chance to create a new forum that is not toxic in the way that social media is toxic now, where the engagement is based on 
Well, it's effectively creating an artificial version of yourself. You know, who we represent ourselves on Instagram or TikTok and so on. It's not really who we are completely. It's just sort of a side of ourselves that, you know, we think is the most attractive, the sexiest, funniest. And that's who we put ourselves out there to be. And that's because you can kind of really edit and templatize who you want to present in a uh, social media space where in a, a metaverse platform, the interactivity is online and in real time and you're interacting with people from all over the world and your avatar is not a falsified version of who you are in real life. It's more of a idealized or aspirational version of not only who you are, but your interests and you know what you would like to become. And so it's this new way of engaging with people all over the world. Still, it's important to balance Al's optimism about this subject with some of the thornier realities learned from living life online for a generation or two. I think, as always, it helps to have some historical perspective and to go back and remember that a lot of the early utopian rhetoric around the internet came down to this idea that on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. It's like wonderfully encapsulated in that you know, New Yorker cartoon, which I think was from like 1994. The idea that the internet would be a space in which one could completely leave behind identity and I think by extension identity politics. I mean, you have to remember like the early 90s, this is like the culture wars have been raging. We have the AIDS crisis. We have the censorship of artists you could become anybody on the internet. You can become anybody that you wanted to be. And that was a really seductive, seductive dream for some people, maybe not for all of us, but it was immediately problematic. And there are amazing scholars like Lisa Nakamura who immediately called out the limits of that utopian dream, that it isn't the case that we immediately started to construct a world without, for example, gender or race or sexual orientation, that even before we had the capability of creating or sharing images on the internet, even when we were limited to just interacting with each other through text, people were already projecting race and gender onto other people. As other scholars like Jennifer Gonzalez have noted, if you think of identity as a skin that you can just sort of take on or off at will, then yes, one can imagine that one can go on the internet and be anybody, but that's actually not what identity is. Identity is the result of a lifelong, deeply rooted experience of a series of social relations. It's about power. It's about privilege. It's about the way that we relate to each other. All of our social relations are mediated by things like our age and our race and our gender and our sexual orientation. And even just something like whether or not we presume that we have the privilege to occupy a space or to speak or to have access is something that is the result of how we have lived our whole lives in society. And you can go on the internet and you can pretend to be a different race. You can say you're somebody that you're not, but you still carry embedded within you 
the summation of your lived experience of the world, which has always been raced and gendered and classed and et cetera, et cetera. As a sort of silly, like concrete example of this that I like to give people, I am disabled and I've worn these medical devices on my body since 1997 that basically are like portable infusion devices. They're like IV drips and catheters that you might be hooked up into a hospital, right? I wear these portable digital devices that are like that, but there's tubing. I have tubing coming out of my body. And over the past, you know, 25 years, I've learned to be really cautious around door handles because I get caught on them. My tubing will snag on a door handle, and sometimes it snags so badly that it actually rips my subcutaneous infusion sets out of my body. What do you think happens when I go into the metaverse and I see a door? I flinch. Like, even virtual doors, I still instinctively am careful around them (laughs) because it's not so easy to leave behind a lifetime of trained reflexes. I carry my disabled body with me into the metaverse. It's not necessarily a utopian place where I can just be free of my devices. To some extent, then, one of the crucial questions about the next generation of shared virtual worlds is whether the people developing them are thinking about how to make them the kinds of inclusive digital spaces we already don't have enough of in the social media era. How do we create a metaverse where everyone can participate and can be included in building it and That also means how are we going to get those folks who don't have access to the internet, let alone a computer, how are we going to get their perspective in this metaverse? Because if it is something that truly is going to be global, we have to also consider those things. So we should dream about how we're going to make that happen. Personal identities aren't the only ones that need to be worked through in a metaverse context either. We also have to reassess the identity of institutions. When it comes to art in particular, what role do museums and nonprofits play in an immersive virtual world where participants can do literally anything that they can dream up? Ryan has thought a lot about this question. At a bare minimum, I think museums have a responsibility to be involved in the conversations that need to be happening around technology. To the extent that museums want to be contemporary, want to be relevant to contemporary life, want to be relevant to the communities that we serve by putting on exhibitions and collecting and conserving art and holding it in the public trust. Technology is now such a determining factor of contemporary life that I do not believe that museums can be relevant without engaging in a really direct and head-on way with the technologies that are not just of the contemporary, but are defining the contemporary, that are the proverbial water in which all of us fish now swim and maybe don't realize that we're swimming in it or don't understand it or don't have any distance from it. The museum can become a space for some critical distance to be achieved, which can offer that critical reflection in the form of something that feels very conceptual and cerebral and intellectual, but also could just take the form of like critical play, sort of experiencing things in a different way. In the end then, how much has really changed since the last best attempts at ushering in a million strong immersive metaverse hit a ceiling almost a generation ago? 
Ao has a unique perspective from his time spent making sense of Second Life. I started with a, well, at minimum, Second Life is going to be a really fascinating microcosm and influential virtual world that might not grow to what we aspire to be. And that's what ended up being the case. Second Life wasn't able to scale to a mass market. I did have a broader vision that did not come to pass, which would be the Second Life vision of fully open creative playground becoming very massive and starting to influence the broader culture. That didn't happen with Second Life, but it is starting to happen with these larger platforms like Roblox and Fortnite. I think VR chat is one that has the most kind of Second Life-ish-ness about it. And it's it's pretty large. I think it's probably about 5 million active users. So it's already kind of past what Second Life was able to do. I'm still hopeful all of the diversity of content and creation and artistry that we saw in Second Life can now scale to some of these platforms. So we really can see these platforms transform the broader culture. A lot of technologists treat the metaverse concept as simply a technology problem, where actually it's about creating an online society, an online world that people can thrive in and meet other people and collaborate creatively with them and build off that creativity. If I was right then, Art, artists, and the industry around them indeed have a meaningful role to play in building whatever shared virtual world or worlds come next. The question is whether anyone is interested in letting them into the Bay Area boardrooms where so many of the key decisions about the metaverse are being made these days. If not, the difference won't just be about aesthetics or device features or price points for whatever we'll need to access the end result. Embedded within every new technology is a set of beliefs about why it is valuable, who deserves access to it, and how it should incentivize its audience to live. These same arguments are as fundamental to hardware and software as they are to art and culture. It's all the more reason that it's incumbent on all of us to sort through what matters most in each of these arenas. Because if we simply accept big tech's preferences as necessities, then we're going to be pushed into a metaverse defined by gadgets and gimmicks and return on investment. And in that shared virtual world, the main types of art that will thrive are the types willing to fit into whatever contours are left over by the people who are dictating the future to the rest of us. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. Special thanks this week to Wagner James Ow, Tina Rivers Ryan, and Sarah Ludi. If you like what you heard... Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Caroline Goldstein, and me, Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.